You may be seated. The children are dismissed. Continuing this morning in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the focus this morning will be on verses 29 through 34. Let's read those now. Paul writes, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Some very interesting words there. A few uh, definite rebukes and uh, things that we can all learn from. Uh, To catch the full gist of Verses 29 through 34, I need to do a basic review again uh, of the, the chapter so far because everything hinges on what's just been said before. And so, uh, as we look at this, uh, we'll get the context and the flow hopefully together and, and help us to see verses 29 through 34 better. In the first 11 verses, Paul preached uh, that the, the Corinthians had received the gospel. And he defined what the gospel is. It is Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And He was raised from the dead on the third day. And the idea of raised from the dead was was intimating that, that there is a physical bodily resurrection. He was raised from the dead. His body was raised. In verses 12 through 19, uh, he, he says, If Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So right here you can start to see there's some, and, you know, and it says some, not everybody was having this problem in the church at Corinth, but it was something, a seed of something that was beginning to, to grow in that church about the fact that Christ's bodily resurrection didn't happen. Christ was raised, it was maybe in spirit, different types of ideas. And this is even believed by many churches that wear the word Christian within their doctrinal statements today. It's hard for me to understand how we can look at the Scriptures and and turn around and ignore the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and say something to the effect that, like I shared last week, only His teachings were resurrected. It doesn't. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, Paul talks about all the witnesses that saw him, that they, that they touched him, that they ate with him, they were with him for forty days, and and they, they, it was a bodily, physical resurrection. So, uh, 
know, Christ died for our sins. He was buried for our sins. He was raised on the third day. And if Christ is raised, is, is raised from the dead, then the question comes clearly, how can anyone say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what he's tying together here too is that Christ's resurrection, His physical bodily resurrection, coincides with the fact that we will be bodily resurrected. And that's why he says, you know, even if some of the people were saying, well, you know, maybe Christ was physically resurrected, but that's not going to happen to us. Our body's just going to go on to some other, you know, element, uh, some other way of, of, of existing. And that was part of a number of Corinthian cults that believed that there was an afterlife, but it was some kind of spiritual, uh, ethereal kind of kingdom of, uh, past the, the, the death. And so, he says very clearly, you know, if the dead are not raised, and notice how many times he's saying if and then here, basically. These are logic arguments. If the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. Our faith is futile. Christ is not raised, our faith is futile. Still in our, we're still in our sins. And those who have died have perished. If in Christ our hope is, is this life only, he says at the end of that, that section, verse 19, he says, if in Christ our hope is this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. In other words, we've dedicated our lives to this. We've committed our resources and our lives to this. And, 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 he, and it's not reality. It's not true. Then how sad. Uh, and, and we are to be pitied. I love verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Exclamation point. But, in fact, He has been raised from the dead. And all of His enemies have been defeated and, and even death, uh, is, uh, the last enemy, will be ultimately and finally defeated through Christ and His resurrection implied. That brings us to verses, uh, verse 29 through 34. And... Uh, Verse 29, well, let me read it once again. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? First question that's got to come to our mind is, what is baptism for the dead? Who is the whom? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> that's, that's the reason why I wanted to know. You and I are on the same page. Um, I was really hoping, you know, this was some years ago as I was doing a study in 1 Corinthians, that there was an answer for this. You realize that there are at least, at least 40 scholars theological scholars going back into the 1600s and up to the present date who don't agree 
They've got 40 different opinions of what this might, and then they say what this might mean. This is the only place in Scripture where this occurs. There's no other Old Testament reference to baptism for the dead. There's no other New Testament for baptism for the dead. It's probably uh, common to us as to maybe hearing about it because there is a, 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 a group, the Mormons, that practice baptism for the dead. And the aspect of the idea of a baptism for the dead was at the time of Corinth, it was in part of the cult religions, was that you could... In fact, one of them was really bizarre. You laid underneath the, the sarcophagus. Uh, somebody alive lays underneath the sarcophagus and somebody stands over the sarcophagus and says, do you want to be baptized? And the person underneath says, yes, please baptize me. You know, I mean, how bizarre. You know, people would go to, to links that they would go. But the idea was that you could stand... It had to be a believer, a baptized believer could stand in stead, in, in, stand in lieu of, uh, a, the person already dead who maybe had never made a confession or maybe had made a confession but had never been baptized and be baptized for them and they would be saved. And we're not sure, like I said, exactly what this verse does mean, but we know what it doesn't mean in the context of what I just said, it doesn't have anything to do with being baptized for dead believers in the sense of being a doctrinal position of the church. And so we have to understand uh, it's called vicarious baptism and it's a false doctrine. Uh, standing in the place, like I said, for an ancestor or a friend or someone who has died and being baptized for them. Uh, the very idea of it starts to speak to the idea of baptism salvation. In other words, you're saved by your baptism. Paul says that, he teaches against that. That would make your salvation a work. I, have, I earn my salvation by being baptized. And so what we need to do is to look at real quickly, you know, first off, how are we saved? And I know I'm preaching to the choir in a, in a sense of, of understanding, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded just how it comes together. And uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, uh, it says that uh, God was rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us, and raised us up uh, with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace through faith. 
And the faith itself is a gift from God. He is the one that puts it in us. He is the one that opens our eyes to His salvation. And so we, we have this picture of, of having no ability to make any boast. And so faith is by faith. It has, it, it's not by baptism. In fact, one of the things that was concerned for some people was, well, so-and-so had accepted Christ, but he, he died before he was baptized, so somebody has to be baptized for him so that he can go to heaven. Nowhere in the Scripture does baptism equate with, a, with a, the idea of needing to have occurred in order to go to heaven. Well, somebody obviously turns around and says, well, then what is baptism? Baptism is a person of faith who has confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior, believes in their heart that He died for their sins and, and ascended you know, into heaven, uh, on our behalf and, and ascended into hell on our behalf was raised and then ascended into heaven is, is it's a believer who gets baptized and baptism is a way of identifying those people who have outwardly professed their faith to say I am a person in the body of Christ and so I have been baptized now think about baptism. You can go to chapter 6 of, of Romans and look, the, look at this, but the idea of being baptized, what happens? It says that you are buried. Here's the action. Here's the water. Here's the person. You are buried. When you go under the water, it is, and the water rushes in, the idea is that's like the earth rushing in over you. You are now buried. You have died. Now, when you come up out of the water, the picture is that you have been resurrected. You are now alive in Christ. You've been buried with Christ, and now you are alive with Christ. And so the symbolism of baptism is acknowledging that you are part of the body of Christ to all who will witness. Baptism, by the way, is not a private thing. It is meant to be a public thing. You notice John the Baptist didn't go... And, and behind some rock someplace and baptize each person individually or whatever. It was a public thing. G, the baptism that was performed during Jesus' ministry was a public thing. Baptism is to be an acknowledgement to the, to the world who you are. You've been buried with Christ, you raised with Christ to walk with Christ. So it, you're talking about a believer coming to, to, to be baptized. So, a baptism for somebody who has passed away and was not baptized would be fruitless. It couldn't, it couldn't work. Uh, you know, then somebody say, well, it, it, it's still the idea that it, it, it somehow passes on. Well, let's just go to Hebrews 9.27 and it ends the, the, the argument. It says that, Man lives once in this lifetime and once in this world and then he dies and then the judgment. There's no second chance. There's no second opportunity. No matter what somebody does for you here, it's done. You either make your decision while you're here, alive in this world, or it doesn't happen. Paul puts it in a succession of, of things out of the book of Romans. You know, he says, you know, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And he talks about if we confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God raised from the dead, then we are saved. And then baptism is a picture of what Christ has done. An outward action for what Christ has done in us. Even as we look at this statement again in, in, in uh, uh, verse 29, uh, the idea of being baptized for the dead, we still haven't explained clearly what is the intent. Okay? Um, there's a, a within the, the framework of a lot of evangelical writers, uh, the idea is that as as people in the church die, new people come along and are baptized to raise up the, the continue to raise up the army of Christ, and so they're baptized. You know, uh, and it's not for the dead, but but uh, as the, those die that are baptized and continue to raise up the army, there's all sorts of explanations. None of them work really well. And the interesting thing is, is that we can't take this one verse especially since it's the only verse, and turn around and make some kind of doctrinal statement out of it. That's against the, the, the rules of theology, if you will. It takes multiple statements to, to make a doctrinal position on something. So this Scripture is just going to remain a mystery in the sense of its full understanding. But it doesn't change the message. The fact that we don't fully understand what it means, it doesn't change the message. In, in verse 30, it says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, in my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I, I fought with beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? By the way, the fought with the beasts in Ephesus, uh, we, we can't be sure. Uh, as to whether there was uh, one point in time where he actually was uh, offered, uh, you know, in, in in the arena there in Ephesus uh, with wild animals, this type of thing. But the the picture here is is more in the picture of the fact that he had been surrounded and stoned and left for dead by Ephesian people. He had been surrounded by the beasts, if you will, and uh, he he says that you know what's the point of me, all this that I've done. If there's no resurrection, what's the point of all that we do, all that we have done? If there is no resurrection, we have to, you know, work this out. Uh, if there's no resurrection, we might as well just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's a pretty callous statement, but haven't you heard it before? Let's eat, drink, and be merry is, is, is the full phrase uh, in some of the, the quotes. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, there's no afterlife. There's nothing to plan for. There's nothing. There's, there, it's, it's over at the point of death. So why do we worry about what is righteous? Let's just feed the flesh, do what the flesh wants to do, and get through life and we die when we die. 
Notice what he says right after that. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. There's an indication that this this philosophy of of live life now uh, and and grab all the gusto you can, so to speak, uh, that dated my made my age stand out. Uh, and the, uh, the that picture of, of 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 just getting everything you can out of life uh, without any concern for anyone else but yourself. It's this idea of eat and drink and, and, and for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Don't let this way of thinking deceive you. Don't let it creep into your thinking. And then he says an interesting thing. He says, bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. How many of you have heard that from a grandparent <laughs> or, a, or a parent or an aunt or an uncle, you know, I could say, you know, don't you, you know, Bobby, you can't hang around with those people. That, you know, they'll they'll you know lead you astray, or you'll you'll end up, or they would be watching and saying, you know, that 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 kid's a bad news kid. I'm not going to let my kid hang with that person. You know, uh, bad company corrupts good morals, and and the reality is is that's true. And what was happening in the Corinthian church was they were embracing this stuff from the outside, so to speak, and saying, we can be both. We can be in the world and we can be in Christ. It's no big deal. There's, you know, and, and, and so they were embracing all sorts of teachings that were creeping into the church. And this is what Paul was concerned about. Not just the, the baptism and not just the... The, the idea of, of, of denying the resurrection, but all sorts of things. It goes back to the way they were doing communion. It goes back to other things that we've already gone over in, in this book so far. They were slipping away from the basics of Christianity and drifting into the world. The, or maybe it's better to say the world was drifting into the church. And Paul was concerned He'd put his life into this church and now he sees it being corrupted. What he was basically saying is, you know, if there's no resurrection, there's no motivation to live a holy life. If the end is the end, then what's the purpose? Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Then he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, he's not calling them a bunch of drunks at this point. Although there was a problem with the communion, you recall they were getting drunk at the communion table and this type of thing. But that's that's not the issue here. The word drunken here is is broad based in, in its use, and what it means is 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 don't be oblivious. If you're if, when you are in a drunken stupor, you are oblivious to what goes on around you. 
And so what he's really actually saying here is, don't be oblivious of what is going on in the church and, and, and what's going to happen. If you embrace this little bit, it's going to take more. And the more it takes, the easier it is to slide down the hill and, and, and be less than what Christ wants you to be. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. And then he makes this really harsh statement. And it's, you'll see why it's so harsh in a moment. He says, For some have no knowledge of God. And the idea of some means for some among you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In other words, there are people around you who don't know who Christ is, how to be a part of His kingdom, and this is to your shame. You have lost your objective. You have lost your incentive. You have lost your desire. You're, you're, you're more obsessed with, with the world and, and what you can get out of it than what you are in the sense of God's kingdom. Basically, Paul is you know, saying this is going to be your epitaph. For some among you have no knowledge of God. To your shame. Emphasizing again, it was preached to them. It was received by them. It was confessed by them. And now, as they were slipping into the world, because a few are bringing teaching of, 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 of things of the world and, and a laxness in the, in the following of Christ and the Word of God, it is now being corrupted by the world. Paul was concerned about the influence of an immoral culture where anything goes, impacting and creeping into the church. And I was looking at this and thinking how much of this applies. And I was, I was had a situation a couple of weeks ago where I was looking for something on, on uh, of all things, YouTube. And I found a series of Billy Graham sermons. And he was concerned about this very thing. You can tell from his sermons. That he was, you know, trying to get the church to, to to wake up. That was part of what he was doing, and and I the idea was that there would be a revival in the in the nation. Well, that's a bad use of the word revival. Revival can't happen to someone that hasn't been <laughs> brought to life in the first place. Revival is for the church. What needs to happen is there needs to be a revival in the church. And that's what Billy Graham was looking for. He was seeing a lot of liberalism coming into the church and he was concerned that the church was becoming another place in a sense like the, uh, almost like a country club. I recall my dad, who to the best of my knowledge never confessed Christ 
on a personal basis, was a member of the of a church in the town that we lived in. And he went faithfully every Sunday. And then uh, something happened. I can't remember what it was. And it just became less important to him. And, and uh, he finally he stopped going. But he told me the reason. I, I asked him. I said, you know, what, why that church and not some other church? And he said, that's the church you go to for business. If you're a businessman in the, in this community, that's the church you need to go to. That's where you'll make your connections. And he said, it's no different, and he was serious, it's no different than going to a rotary club. To him, it was just an organization to make connections. By the way, that was not an uncommon problem within the framework of the church in the 60s and 70s. And and so the idea was that you belong to this church and, 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 and you interact with the business people there and, and it looks good. It looks good to the community. It looks good. Oh, he's a good person. When church gets to that position, there needs to be a revival. How many of you are familiar with the Great Awakenings? You've heard the term Great Awakening maybe? Okay, Great Awakenings were a really interesting time in, in our history in the, in the 1700s uh, and the late 1700s, early 1800s, and then again in the mid-1800s. The first Great Awakening happened in the early uh, 1700s, and then the second Great Awakening happened uh, in the, the late 1700s and early 1800s. And what was happening was, the, in fact, one person made a, a comment, and this was all basically back east. The bulk of the population in the, of the nation was on the east coast, and some of it was just beginning to show up over the, the mountains into the Ohio Valley and into that area. And, and they, were, they were saying, uh, this one pastor was making the comment, uh, there are more people in the bar Sunday mornings than there are in church. And he says, we've got to do something about that. And he realized that the church was not making a difference. So he got a group of pastors together and they started praying. And the interesting thing was God started changing their hearts about what they had been preaching and what they, they should be preaching. And they realized they weren't preaching the, the, the good news, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were just preaching what was good news, meaning there's a heaven and, and everybody gets to go. And so they started getting very serious about their preaching. And the next thing, there was revival in the church. The church was revived and began to swell. And then there was a, an awakening within their community uh, of people saying, wow, there's something going on there. There's something to this. They would go and they would hear. And the next thing you know, there was, there was huge throngs of people on the west, east coast coming to church and, and accepting the Lord and, and the churches were growing faster than they ever had. And they started sending pastors over the mountains into the Ohio Valley. The Ohio Valley was about as corrupt a place as you could find anywhere. And, and, and anything that you can imagine in the way of sinful behavior and sinful life, it was happening. And these pastors, there were, there were no churches 
to speak of. They started preaching in the fields. In fact, they'd cut down a tree and stand on the stump. That's where stump preaching got its name. And uh, start preaching. And there was an awakening. Not a revival. An awakening. The Word of God started going out. And people started hearing it. And amazing things were happening in these services. Can you imagine? Think of this. In the Ohio Valley, near Lexington, Kentucky, in 1804 or 05, right along in there, there's Lexington. I think had uh, you know around 850 people in it. That was and that was a big town. And this guy started preaching. And the next thing you know, people were coming from all around the general area to the point where there was one, two, three, even 3,000 people showing up to the services that ended up being held in the fields you know, as, as he was preaching. It ended up people coming clear from Louisiana to the point where there was as many as 25,000 people in the fields with multiple pastors preaching at any given time around the clock. And people coming to the Lord. And it was called the Great Awakening. What our nation is due for is another Great Awakening, if you're looking at the if you look at the timing of things. And uh, I believe God is wanting to get us to look at ourselves, our lives, and just not that any of us are, are slackers in the, in the sense of our faith and our walk with Christ, but what more can we do? What more can we uh, do in order to cause the love of Christ to invade this area around us? And I, I put here, what changes a culture? I, I, I'm assuming that you would be in agreement with me that our culture is, is, is corrupt. It needs a, a, an awakening. And I just put a few things down. A church, it need, it need, what needs to, uh, to change a culture? Well, first off, it needs a church entrenched in God's Word and, uh, and preaching God's Word. A bold preaching of God's Word. An outpouring of God's Holy Spirit in the church will lead to a great awakening. I just want to uh, suggest that this is what Paul was concerned about. The opposite was happening in the church in Corinth. They were succumbing to the ways of the world infiltrating the church. He wanted instead the church to wake up Corinth and instead Corinth was invading the church. And we want to be always on our guard for our families, for our, our, our community of believers and friends in our church, that we are doing everything we can to preach and live the Word of God in such a way that there will be the people who will ask us, as, as Peter points out in First Peter, why are you the way you are? Oh, let me share with you. 
because of what Christ has done for me. The resurrection has everything to do with it. The bodily, physical resurrection of Christ is, is and that seems to be more than anything else, the stumbling block for people. I don't. I, in fact, it was for me. I could not figure out why all of these friends that Kathy and I had that were 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 people that we used to to go out with and and party with and everything were starting to to come to the Lord. And they would show up over to our house and, and with their Bibles and want to share with us. They couldn't wait to share with us something new that they had learned and and how important it was to them. And finally I I, 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 I was I was found myself on a quest to find out how these people could possibly buy into a physical bodily resurrection. And I read books, I studied, and I came to the conclusion it must be true. There's too many things pointing to it and not enough things pointed away from it. Some people will say, well, wrong tomb or different types of things like that or the body was stolen. If you don't think the, the, the Romans and, the, and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees wouldn't have worked together to push that out and stomp it out immediately uh, and, and, and expose it, if it was a fraud. You don't understand how much they hated the idea of Christianity. <laughs> they would have done anything they could have. And yet, in spite of their desire to, flush it, to push it out, in fact, they even had some people lie about, oh, they, they stole the body from the tomb. No matter what they did, they couldn't squash it. Why? Because it had, it had God behind it. It had the Holy Spirit in it. It was for real. There was a bodily resurrection. In fact, there was a bodily resurrection. And it was for real. It is for real. And because of it, we can embrace it by confessing with our mouth, believing in our heart that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God raised from the dead for our sakes. And when we do that, we are part of the kingdom of God. Every time we share in communion, we celebrate that. What Christ has done for us. He went to the cross. You know, it's interesting. One part of here, it says, according to Scripture, according to Scripture, according to Scripture. Go to Psalm... In fact, really quickly, I look at it. Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, uh, David is the is the writer, and it's such a powerful picture of what happened on the cross. You're familiar with the words in Matthew. Uh, I think it's chapter uh, 24, uh, or excuse me, 27, that says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Okay, a thousand years before that was said on the cross, David writes in a prophetic passage, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are You so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but You do not answer, and by night, but I do. I find no rest. Yet You are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. And he goes on and he says, they're looking at me like I'm a worm. They're, running, they're marching around me. Let me read it to you. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. This is at the foot of the cross. Word for word, it's recorded in John almost literally as to what was happening at the foot of the cross. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In other words, they're, they're, they're shaking their heads at me. And then they say, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Exactly what the Pharisees were saying around the cross. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Being very sarcastic. Uh, Jesus speaking again. This, this picture of the Psalm 22 is, a, is a, an insight from the cross looking out. We look at the Gospels and we see the cross looking at it. This is looking from it in Jesus' mind and heart. And, and again, these prophetic words. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd. That would be a piece of pottery dried out in the desert. And my tongue sticks to my mouth. Uh, you lay me in the dust of death. John 19, verse 28, what did Jesus say? I thirst. That's the picture of it there. He says, Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. There was no crucifixion at this point. There was, that was not used in a form of, of, of punishment at this point that, that David writes this. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. How could they count all those bones? Well, after shoving that post of the cross down into the hole and it jolts like this, it separates. And he could literally look out and see. He would be able to, to count his ribs visually. I count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19.34 The soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for Jesus' clothes. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 that He was pierced for our transgressions. And the idea of pierced was that thrusting in the side that happened to him. Isaiah even goes as far as to say he was supposed to be buried with the criminals, but he ended up being buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's exactly what happened. He was buried in the tomb of Josephus, uh, Joseph. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, he was a rich man that, uh, uh, and, and he allowed you know, him to be buried in his tomb that hadn't been used yet. All these words, Paul says, according to Scripture, according to Scripture, according to Scripture, all these things happened to Jesus. He died. He was put on the cross. He was nailed to the cross. He was buried. And he died. And he was physically resurrected. Communion, we celebrate that. We don't celebrate just the, the, the crucifixion. We don't celebrate just the, the, what happened on the cross, but we celebrate His resurrection as well. And not only do we not just celebrate His resurrection, but we celebrate His coming again 
the scripture I'm going to use for communion this morning. Uh, I'm going to read it before we can get communion. Um, it's out of the Gospel of Mark. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is My body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's coming again. We celebrate all of that. And it is a celebration. It's a time of thanksgiving. Thank You, Lord, for what You have done for us. We have a communion song that we're going to sing, and as we sing it, I invite you to come up and and pick up the communion. And uh, we'll hold it until we've all been served, and, and we'll share together when the song is done. Blazing sun 
shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us share. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be here together to worship in song and prayer and opening Your Word together and sharing the table together. We ask, Lord, that You would go with us Walk with us. Cause us to rest in You in such a way that Your love can minister through us to others. And we ask that You would uh, cause us to be the, the, the children of God You want us to be in every place You set us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? And uh, just want to say thank you for being here this morning. Lord bless. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Was great.